Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh, hello, my beautiful angel. This is Brenda Davies, and welcome to another episode of God is Gray. Today, we're talking to Kristen Cobus Dume. She is an American historian and a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Kristen is also the New York Times bestseller of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen's scholarly account of American Christianity presents a 75-year history of evangelicalism that identifies the forces that have turned Donald Trump into a hero of the religious right. I know so many of us have been perplexed and confused and horrified to see Trump be elevated as some sort of demigod or someone that is even remotely affiliated with Christ, despite all of the evidence we have to show otherwise. And Kristen also asks us to reckon with masculinity, this version of which is harming men, women, families, and the nation at large. So for anyone who has been curious about how on earth white evangelicalism got so majorly corrupted, or frankly, how it was corrupted from the start, you're going to enjoy this episode, and I highly recommend you go out and buy yourself a copy of Jesus and John Wayne. So on to the episode. Hi, Kristen. It is so wonderful to have you on God is Gray. Today, we are talking about your incredible book called Jesus and John Wayne. I have watched wonderful lectures on YouTube. I've read the book. And what your work does is this impeccable unraveling and really showing how people began to believe this fallacy that Christian masculinity is supposed to look a very particular way. And a lot of people in the Trump era kind of believed that Trump was just this crazy figurehead that came out of nowhere, that Christians suddenly were just compromising all of their core values in order to prop up this man, when in fact, your book really shows that Christian culture and what we've deemed Christian masculinity has been leading to this. And Trump is really just the culmination of years and years of what I would define as toxic masculinity. And before any men listening get their panties in a twist, I would like to mention that masculinity in its toxic form hurts men too. As a matter of fact, I think it hurts men. I mean, it's an internal pain. It's something that is like recognizable in their behavior and the way they move through the world in the way they are not succeeding with women. We have so many angry men who cannot figure out what masculinity is supposed to look like. Figures like Andrew Tate, 
Trump himself, um, rappers or musicians talking about guns, money, hoes, like all of these different things do not serve men because really they don't allow anyone to play with all aspects of them of themselves, including their divine femininity mixed with all of this. And Jesus is someone that I see who is so transparently and equally divine masculine and divine feminine. So I truly believe that your book outlines this beautifully. And this is something I've agreed with for a long while, that men really need permission to dive into all aspects of themselves. And that masculinity really becomes toxic when they're trying to hold on desperately to these really surface level, part of my French, bullshit ideas of what makes makes a man a man. So thank you so much for being here, Kristen. Would you please give us a brief synopsis of your book, what inspired this work, and what you want people to know about the book that you have written? Sure. So and if we go back to the fall of 2016, uh, October 2016, to be specific, and the release of the Access Hollywood tapes, if you recall, uh, this is the infamous <laughs> grab them by the pussy, right? And you know, the, the whole country kind of stopped at that point to see what are evangelicals going to do? Because uh, white evangelicals were very clearly Trump's um, most stalwart supporters and key to any chance he had of winning the presidency. And um, a couple of evangelical leaders faltered ever so briefly, like Wayne Grudem um, rescinded his support uh, for a couple of days and then he prayed about it. And then he was right back <laughs> supporting Trump again. And really, you know, most didn't waver at all. And um, this this really prompted a lot of of pundits to to question, you know, how could evangelicals betray their values? And some never Trump evangelical leaders were right in there with them. You know, how could evangelicals betray their values? These are family values, evangelicals. This is the purported moral majority. What is even happening here? But I knew that that was the wrong question to ask. I knew that what we were seeing wasn't a betrayal of their values because that concept suggests that we didn't fully understand what their values actually were. And as a historian, I knew that if we if we look closely at family values politics and go back into the 1960s and 1970s, when we first hear them talking in these terms, we can see that at the center of family values politics is the assertion of white patriarchal authority. Right, that's key. And as soon as you place that at the center, a whole lot of other things start to fall into place. And I knew that because more than 15 years earlier, I had started researching Christian books on manhood, on masculinity. And I was honestly shocked by what I found. And it was my students. I teach at a Christian university here in Michigan. It was my students, my male students, who first brought these books to my attention. And when I, when I read them, it, I was startled by how so many of these books on Christian manhood, this was in the early 2000s that these were coming out, and they were selling some of them millions of copies, right? Um, deeply influential. I was surprised that, you know, evangelicals are supposed to be all about the Bible. These are Bible-believing Christians, and there weren't many Bible verses in, in these books at all. Instead, they were drawing on mythical warriors and heroes and men like Teddy Roosevelt and cowboys and soldiers and 
Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson's <laughs> William Wallace from the movie Braveheart and John Wayne, right? You know, it's like, what's going on here? What is, the, you know, it, but it's all being called biblical. And so they're sketching this very militant, militaristic conception of masculinity and then calling it God ordained calling so to be a man to be a responsible christian this is your model and as you suggested this sets up an unrealistic ideal most men don't want to live into this most men even if they did want to can't live into this you know macho warrior masculinity and and so it sets them up for a kind of crisis but for decades evangelicals have been peddling this kind of ideal of what manhood is and um, and it has really been bad for men and for women. And so many of my um, strongest supporters, actually, of Jesus and John Wayne are evangelical men themselves. Oh, wow. That's quite astonishing. That's interesting. What have they said to you? I'm just so curious because you would think that they would buck up against that so strongly. So are you implying that men are actually finally addressing the damage that is done to themselves and the women and children around them? Yeah. So when I, for when, when Jesus and John Lane was set to release, it's been out more than two years now, but in the weeks before, um, actually I'd been told um, months before I'd gone, the book had gone through a thorough uh, legal review, right? So my publisher's lawyer, we went through every sentence and a couple of chapters, every sentence multiple times. And uh, at the end of the that process, she basically said, uh, all right, it's good to go prepare yourself for vicious trolling. And so that's, you know, the book launched into the world and I was preparing myself. And within a couple of days, because uh, we had a big launch, it was NPR's morning edition. So it was out in the world in a real way. Within a couple of days, I started getting letters and people think I get a lot of hate mail. I actually get almost none, um, but I still get several messages a day from largely from evangelical or former evangelical readers saying, this is the story of my life. And thank you for helping me see how all these pieces fit together. Um, so there are certainly some, um, not all evangelical men love me or the book. It is very fair to say, if you're on Twitter, you can have a front row seat into what this looks like. Um, but those who are really kind of attacking me and attacking the book, actually, they, they, they don't really attack the book because it's, it's so well evidenced. So they usually come after me. So I'm a heretic or I'm a wolf or, um, you know, I'm, I'm writing in bad faith or I'm mean, I get a lot of that, but, um, uh, you know, those are the ones who who stand to lose their positions of power and authority. And, and they're, sometimes literally their jobs depend on them promoting this patriarchal system. And uh, apart from those, though, there are so many men who realize, yes, I participated in this. And for some, it was not good. For some, it never was the right fit. For others, it was great for a while. And only now they can kind of go back and see they've listened to other voices. They've seen the fruits of this ideology and where it's brought our country, where it's brought the evangelical church. And now they're ready to rethink. 
Incredible. I'm so over the moon to hear that. So when you're talking about the fear of losing power, I have been rewatching Mad Men again. And it's really funny because I find if I date someone successful or that has power or money or a great house, more than wanting to be with them, I tend to envy them <laughs> and be like, why do I not get to be this guy? And for, you know, watching Mad Men, I'm like, I want to be a handsome philanderer who just gets to like go to work every day and come home to my gorgeous wife and my children who've been taken care of all day without me lifting a finger. Like when I look at that level of power, I can only imagine how difficult that would be to let go of. On the other hand, just like all of these archetypes that you've listed from, you know, Mel Gibson's characters and John Wayne and all the characters he played, like they are just characters and archetypes and the amount of people that are actually able to move through the world like a freaking Dom Draper. I like, I have not met that guy. Like men are messy. Men in that level of stoicism are often in a lot of pain or drinking or doing drugs or all of that philandering is actually not as satiating as it's portrayed to be because, you know, you know, promiscuity on that level, secrets on that level, all of that stuff kind of festers in darkness, as the Bible says. So that said, these archetypes are just impossible to reach. Also, John Hamm is like handsome as hell in it. So that's just another huge benefit that he has in that machismo. But all of that said, again, with Mad Men, you know, if I look at it, it's so interesting and beautiful the way the creator of that show really showcases the pain that that causes. Like when, if he is the pinball in the pinball machine, everything that he's knocking over, everything that he's ignoring, every responsibility he's dropping, there is a lot of pain and heartbreak around him. And he is the source of it instead of the source of like, strength and joy and peace that a biblical man, if you're actually reading the Bible and reading about Jesus is meant to be, you know, exactly. You're right. And so you're drawing on, you know, there within, within the Bible, within Christian tradition, there are all sorts of values that really counteract this conception of this rugged militaristic Christian masculinity. And, and you, you use the word stoic, right? And if you look at the scriptures, uh, first of all, I mean, the Bible is very complicated, right? And sometimes contradictory. And so certainly you can find a, a verse here or there. And no, it's easy and it never contradicts. That's what like young Christians like to say. It's easy to read. Different tradition. <laughs> We're okay with, you know, big picture here. Um, you know, it's, I don't come from a tradition that holds up inerrancy in the Southern Baptist kind of way. Uh, but, you know, but even if you, you do, right, you can, sure, you can go to the, the book of Revelation and, you know, how you make sense of that is, is, you know, a matter of uh, theological uh, debate discussion for literally centuries. Uh, but, you know, pick a couple of verses and say, see, warrior Christ, there you go. And then you end up kind of transforming that into, and Jesus is fighting all the battles that just happen to be the ones that I want to fight, right? The ones that increase my power and help me feel really good about myself. When in fact, there are so many teachings in the scriptures that counteract this ideology. So, you know, love your neighbor, as yourself, love your enemy, 
turn the other cheek, or, you know, what does it mean to follow Christ is to take up your cross, to suffer, to sacrifice. And then the fruit of the spirit in your life are things like kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so, you know, what is biblical here and what is Christian masculinity? And so often still, you know, I, I wrote a history book, but I do get asked because it is very popular in evangelical spaces. I get asked a lot, okay, but, but what is Christian manhood then, right? Give us the replacement formula. And I think that it's actually a really bad question and that the question itself is, is reflecting a whole lot of assumptions that there is a masculinity, right? And that there is a Christian masculinity and even that Christians ought to be concerned about finding a one size fits all kind of box that men try to place themselves into. Um, instead, you know, we could just say, what does it mean for this man to follow Christ? What does it mean for all people to follow Christ? And that just reframes the conversation in ways that I think are really healthy, which doesn't mean you can't, you know, think about as a man, how am I faithful? Um, but you think of it more in your particular situation, less in terms of these like mythical roles that you're going to pretend to live into, but always fall short. Exactly. I mean, yes, exactly. So I would love to go through some of these key characters because you know, it's really interesting how we got there. And you're, you've done a beautiful job of outlining things like sequentially, but I definitely grew up in the John Eldridge era. <laughs> so this is so interesting because you really believe with evangelicals, his rise to fame was really due to the Iraq war and sort of feeling like we needed men to lean back into the warrior masculinity. So can you kind of explain? Also, this is like a backlash to 9-11, also really interesting. So can you explain how a figure like John Eldridge and his book ends up, and what is it called? Uh, Wild at Heart? You know, I happen to have it right here. Uh, Wild <laughs> at Heart. I, I do reference it occasionally in my talk. So this is, this is my uh, little visual aid here. Uh, Wild at Heart, Discovering the Secret of a Man's Soul. And yeah, so as a historian, uh, as an American historian, I think it's really important to analyze evangelicalism and these evangelical works in the context of what else is going on in American history and even in world history, right? And that's really what I'm doing in Jesus and John Wayne. And so often evangelicals just kind of live in their little bubble, right? And they tell their own, they define their own narratives and they insist this is the way it is. And so what a historian is going to do is say, okay, let's look at that and, and let's, let's, let's examine it in, in terms of some other issues. And so um, to understand Eldridge's Wild at Heart, and this is just a classic book, and this is the first one that was brought to my attention in the early 2000s and I, um, um, from by my students. And I mean, the gist of it is God is a warrior God. Men are made in his image. Therefore, every man has a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. Uh, now we could look at that and say, is this scriptural? And that's perfectly legitimate to ask that. As a historian, I look at it first and say, why was he saying this in this way at this time? And for that, you have to go back to the 1990s, actually. And the 1990s is when um, Christian manhood really just burst on the national scene with the Promise Keepers movement, the Evangelical Men's Movement, right? And they were responding to a time of deep confusion in their words, right? Confusion, confusion, confusion comes up all the time in their rhetoric because 
all of the, like the earlier vision of conservative Christian masculinity had developed during the Cold War era, when it kind of made sense, you need to defend Christian America. And they're talking about like literal defense. They're talking about Vietnam, right? And uh, defending patriarchy against feminism and also defending the social order against civil rights movement in the case of some. And, and that all made sense, but in uh, internally, right, within their system. And then um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, we're into the early 90s, and all of a sudden, like, everything's up for grabs again. And you have a lot of evangelicals saying, okay, what should we do in terms of foreign policy? Um, maybe feminism is here to stay. What should Christian men actually be like? And maybe the old vision was outmoded. And so there's a lot of experimentation. And so in the, in the Promise Keepers movement, you definitely have the old patriarchy surfacing, but you usually see it cloaked in some softness, tenderness. So we need warriors, but tender warriors. We need patriarchs, but soft patriarchs. We need leaders, but servant leaders. And, and there was a lot of kind of internal debate within the movement, but it was the kinder, gentler patriarchy. Uh, and then you start to see a backlash developing over the course of the decade. And a lot of Christian men are starting to say, especially leaders, uh, this is too soft. This is too gentle. You don't want tenderness in the trenches. Can you give me an example of what that might look in, like in real time? If, if you're doing a soft patriarchy, what are some of the key components of that? Uh, so being nice, right? Um, and being a good dad. Uh, right. Nothing against being a good dad, uh, actually helping your wife sometimes <laughs> like that. That's a theme in some of the promise keepers literature. And honestly, for some men and women in these spaces, those are really good things. If they're coming out of a harsher patriarchal space, uh, there's, there's, there's some good changes that, you know, a man should, a man should be present in the home. He should help, you know, help his wife with the housework, with the childcare from time to time. He should be present. Um, he should not be harsh and authoritarian, but he should exercise proper godly authority. So the authority, the patriarchy is still there, right? So it's, it's a real mix. Um, and, and then we see, uh, this backlash kind of starting to well up. And that is the pendulum is swinging back so that in 2001, we actually have three books published, uh, Eldridge's Wild at Heart. You have uh, James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys, where testosterone is the key, right. right? Teach your boys to play with guns, train them to be rugged men and leaders and all that. And Doug Wilson's Future Men. Doug Wilson in the news a lot lately, uh, you know, he posits a theology of fist fighting. All of these three books are on the shelves of Christian bookstores when terrorists strike the United States. So they weren't inspired by that event, but they gained this widespread relevance within uh, evangelical circles and beyond because every man needs a battle to fight. Well, here we have it. Wow. Okay. So the timing was just perfect. And the third, the third author, why is he in the news right now? I've checked out for a second. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we're talking Doug Wilson and Doug Wilson, interesting character. And, and if you don't know who Doug Wilson is, that's probably a really good thing. But uh, Doug Wilson is this, uh, not a mainstream figure. And I make this point in Jesus and John Wayne. I, 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 one of the questions I'm teasing throughout the entire book is what is mainstream and what is fringe? And I say very clearly, 
really Doug Wilson would be deeply offended if you considered him mainstream. He always positioned himself, he was taking on the the evangelicals, the popular evangelicalism of uh, the 1990s. It was too soft. It was, it was, you know, too winsome. And he's gonna be this harsh patriarchy. And he has um, this community in Moscow, Idaho, and he's very influential in conservative Christian homeschool circles. He has a church uh, or multiple churches, and he has uh, New St. Andrews University. And it's this kind of enclave of uh, just deeply patriarchal um, and openly offensive kind of misogynistic version of conservative Christianity. And he takes pride in that. When I was writing this book, interesting responses, like I know about Doug Wilson because I I move in some of these spaces. A lot of people, um, you know, had never heard of him. So my editor who who knew nothing about that was like, tell me more about this Doug Wilson guy, right? Never heard. I've heard of Jerry Falwell, but I want more Doug Wilson. Uh, And then a scholar of American evangelicalism who read the manuscript before it went into production um, said, why do you have so much Doug Wilson? He's, he's such a fringe outlier character. He doesn't belong in this book. Right. And, and now, now we see, you know, what is fringe and what is mainstream. And um, what I show in the book is how this uh, Doug Wilson openly racist. um, He would dispute that I would stand by it. Right. Again, super patriarchal, crass, offensive, all of that. Um, He is platformed by Christianity Today in the 2000s, right? He is defended by people like John Piper, by these respectable evangelicals. And that's the point of my book is that the more respectable, like public facing evangelicals, there are deep affinities connecting them to these fringe characters. Uh, and that's what we're seeing right now in the media is we're trying to figure out what is Christian nationalism? Are we seeing a threat to American democracy? Are all white evangelicals in on this game? What is really happening here? And you have to understand the history of these underlying affinities to understand what's happening now. Yeah, that's pretty wild to think about, like how you could sort of position yourself like a John Piper is like, oh, I'm not that offensive. But then if you put your stamp of approval on someone who is saying very openly toxic thing. It's this kind of like, oh, this must be what you actually believe behind closed doors <laughs> because- Right, and and what you're willing to tacitly condone or quietly support, right? And, and where you're gonna draw your lines and who is with you and who is against you. So we can see very clearly in these spaces like the Gospel Coalition, any Christian who did not go along with complementarianism, so essentially, you know, patriarchy, and instead understood the scriptures, they could sign on to all the creeds and confessions, but would say, no, actually, I think that if you read the scripture, it teaches a more egalitarian relationship between men and women, right? Those were out. Right? They were they were not part of the gospel coalition, but you could be blatantly racist and you could essentially condone abuse, defend abusers, uh, and still be brother in Christ. And still, well, he gets the gospel right. And this is how that worked in those spaces. And we are living with the fruit of that today. What sort of like doctrinal supposedly concepts were brought up by these men to support this? Because 
you know, again, using someone like Trump or Mark Driscoll, you know, these kinds of men are so blatantly in your face, not mere images of what we see as Christ. And, you know, when conservative men are screaming cuck at other men just for like being the one in the household who does the dishes, (laughs) that sort of thing too. I'm like, there would be, you would scream cuck in the face of Jesus so quickly. He has, you know, he's lounging with other men. He is, you know, allowing his feet to get washed. He's doing all of these things that are in his feminine divinity, allowing women to partake in what he's teaching, being super submissive in his death. Like they were challenging him to come off the cross. If you're God, get yourself out of this situation. If he was God, surely he would have that power. And yet what did he do but submissively allow himself to die in this really violent way? That contradiction is just so mind-blowing. And I really wonder how it's even possible that we jump from one to another, how it's even possible that someone could read the New Testament and everything in red and then still see a Mark Driscoll or even someone more low-key, supposedly like a John Piper, who is so sexist, and then just be like, yeah, that that looks like what I'm reading. You know, how does that even happen? I mean, you're right that if you look at the Jesus of the Gospels, it really is about divesting of power, right? Claiming this, this. I mean, so Jesus has the authority of God himself, and we can get into Trinitarian uh, language if we want, but uh, in the incarnation, right, becomes human and then follows this path to the cross. And you're right, you know, like the, the real temptation in the desert is, claim your power, you know, act out, show us, prove it. Right. And Jesus is like, no. Yeah. And it was literally Satan that was asking him to prove his power. Exactly. (laughs) Right. No, that's, that's not what I am here to do. That is not the heart of truth of Christian love. Right. And so it is a very subversive faith at its heart, subversive against the structures of power. Now we're both interpreting scriptures here. Let me just be clear about that. Right. So we're, you know, and, and part of history is showing that everybody kind of thinks that they have the clear understanding. So I'm going to say, you know, this is, um, I, I can't say this is the only it's, it's not, is it the right one? We could argue about that, but this is, um, uh, certainly in the history of Christianity and Christian theology, right? Keeps coming, coming back to that. Now the history of Christianity itself, Christians really like power, right? So they're going to use this and then use this to justify why they need to seize power, maintain power, right? For themselves. That is a big part of Christian history. So little caveat, the subtitle of my book is um, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. That is not a historical claim. The first part, Fractured a nation? Yes, it is. Uh, The corrupted a faith, right? That's kind of a theological claim. That's me saying to evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians on their own terms, you are literally like explicitly saying, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. That doesn't apply to us now. They are literally like refashioning the Jesus of the gospels that you're talking about into this warrior. So that Mark Driscoll writes of, you know, Jesus riding a horse and Jesus has tattoos down his leg and he's wielding a bloody sword and he's going to slay all his enemies and we should do likewise, right? That's what we're talking about. So they are literally transforming those and, and writing off huge swaths of the New Testament 
and saying, yeah, that doesn't apply to us. You can't teach a boy to become a man if you teach him to turn the other cheek. And the reason, because the threat is so great. Now, what is the threat? That's the fun thing here. It changes over time, but there is always a threat. Something interesting about that is that I was really struck by the notion that Jesus was always telling us to lean into love and that the author of fear is our enemy. The Bible tells us over 90 times not to fear. So the fact that you're explicitly stating that there always had to be a point of contention and fear in order to implement this sort of behavior among leaders and the male parishioners and the females that would follow and the children that would follow. So describe those points of fear, which I would deem antichrist in the most literal sense of the word. Yeah. So, I mean, this really came into focus for me when I was researching the chapter on uh, these fake ex-Muslim terrorists, which if you haven't read the book, it's, it's gonna be really confusing or just mind boggling. And even if you read it, it is. So um, let me tell that story a little bit because uh, in post 9-11, there's this huge thing, um, a number of former Muslims purportedly, former Muslim terrorists converted to evangelicalism and then took to the evangelical speaking circuit. And they were sponsored by organizations like Focus on the Family and CBN, and they were huge, huge. One of them came to my university and spoke. And just so happens that one of my colleagues in the history department, uh, Doug Howard, is an expert on um, uh, Islamic history. And he like right away was like, this guy makes no sense. He's making this stuff up. Like he's, he's using concepts that don't even exist. And, um, and so he did a little research and he ended up calling the president a focus on the family and discovered that they knew he was a fraud. They knew he was a fraud and kept promoting him. And he wasn't just a fraud in that respect. Like he had made up everything. And, and these are wild stories. Like I write about them in the book. Like they wrote, they lied about everything. Like he also lied that he was a football player, star football player um, for the Oklahoma Sooners. Like he never went there, you know, like totally fabricated. Now, you know, it wasn't just that they were lying, but they were being promoted even long after it was clear that they were all lying about their, their, um, their histories. And so that's when I realized um, the fear was real. I knew people in at that time who were listening to these, these men who were reading these books and they were desperately afraid because they were being taught that Islam is evil. It's a religion of hate. And these Muslims are trying to come to America and to kill you and your children. James Dobson that said, you know, this is the radical Islam is the greatest threat to the American family, your little kids, right? I mean, they're literally saying this and it was all, you know, what you know, we could talk about is Islam a threat, is radical Islam a threat, right? The fact that they were not going with what was actually true and they were willingly and willfully, you know, just putting out this fake propaganda. Then it clicked for me, fears were real. But if you go and you look at the history of evangelicalism, of the Christian right, look at Falwell Sr., Thomas Road Baptist Church, look at Mark Driscoll in, at Mars Hill, right? He liked to be flanked by security guards to always gin up this sense of they are out to get me. And why? Because there is no better way to consolidate your own power than to tell people that they are in 
great danger unless they come to you for protection. Mm-hmm. And conveniently, if you can pitch this entire like existence as war, then anybody who is not with you is against you, right? And absolute loyalty can, must be demanded. And that's exactly what people like Driscoll did, right? So it is this great playbook for getting money and demanding loyalty and consolidating power. And it really, you can understand a lot of the history of the Christian right with that formula in mind. Oh, it's just so frustrating because that is the other thing, this us versus them mentality. I keep bringing this up, but it's just too fascinating for me that the word Satan in the original text means the divider. So whenever you see division, it's like the division is the fruit of this toxic theology. Look at the fruit. The fruit of Trump is that there are families that no longer speak to each other, that there are people that are such a fever pitch of hatred towards other groups of people that they have become genuinely, if they weren't already racist, sexist, um, what are the other isms? Like so many different things, obviously transphobic, homophobic, all of that hatred and that fear-based animosity is really what is at the root of evangelical culture. And this is why I have such a, like such a channel built against that entire theology, because for me, like the way you described uh, the, what's it called under your book? <laughs> the one losing the word. Um, that's not the tagline. Oh, the subtitle, the subtitle. Yeah. yeah. When you talk about that, like ruining of the faith and the way they have taken it out of the hands of people who are not based in hatred, but instead based in love, like everything I project is based in love. And you may not agree with every theological stance I have, but I will say that when I go in the world or when I know people who are not all the isms and phobias and they are not based in fear, that people say they recognize Christ in me and those kinds of people. And why? Because our faith was never meant meant to be built on fear and never meant to be about alienating and hating anyone else. Like you can disagree with a lesbian couple, you know, adopting a child, but to have fear as the reason that you're going to treat them terribly, that you're going to vote against their human rights. It's just, it's never going to add up to true Christian faith for me. Um, And biblically, I see that mirrored with that stance as well. And one side note I want to bring up, because you brought up Jerry Fowell, it's my favorite story in the entire world that Jerry Fowell Jr. is a cuck. (laughs) I I wrote this book uh, before that was uh, all of the dark sides of uh, Fowell Jr. I don't know if they all have been revealed, but more, but the clues were certainly there. And, uh, and so you can read that. I, the, the, the sections of the book that I really enjoyed writing, actually, uh, I enjoyed writing the sections on Fowell Jr. and on Eric Metaxas. And, you know, you could really see where things were going. And in fact, in in that legal review, I mentioned uh, one of the things that did get cut was a joke that I made about uh, Falwell Jr. And it was about the pool boy, um, which at that point had just been like, it wasn't really big national story. Like you had to like be looking for it. And I'd followed that story very closely. And they they looked at it like, you know what, like it's, 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 it's just, you know, you 
don't ask to be sued kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And then, and then a year later, like uh, actually about three months after the book came out, that story went, went big. Right. And that's, I was like, I, I would have been fine. Right. <laughs> now everybody's telling pool boy jokes, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's that, um, hypocrisy, right. That is just so stunning. And, and what's, what's hard about this is there are so many well-intentioned people who are caught up in this. I know really good people at Liberty University. I know parents who still send their kids to Liberty University. And, um, and then they, but then they are in some ways complicit in this as well. Uh, but they are being taught um, from a very early age that you need to show deference to authority, to these God-ordained authorities, to these men that God has placed in positions of authority. And they're told you need to protect the gospel. You need to protect the witness of the church, of this institution. And if you come after this man, if you tell the truth, right? If you call this out, then you are damaging the kingdom of God. That is very common rhetoric in these spaces. And there are all kinds of rules and, and, and cultural like practices set up in these spaces of, oh, gossip. That the Bible says you shouldn't gossip. So you can't say anything bad about a leader, even if he's abusing your own children. Yeah. You have to just, and then you have to sign the NDA and you have to protect this man. And collectively over the years, you just see that this has absolutely allowed this toxic culture to fester and to take hold on a scale. It's really hard to comprehend. Absolutely. It's funny. I was talking to uh, Sheila Gregore. She wrote this. Oh, oh, yeah. That's how we connected. I totally forgot. Yeah. She was so generous with the connection to you, but her book is called The Great Sex Rescue. And at one point in our conversation, we were talking about whether she's trolled, like how her book was received. And um, this, her book, for anyone who's not aware, is great because she, you know, I'm a little too far out there for a lot of people, but. Sheila is really standing in that gap to be like, I am still a part of, you know, these conservative Christian spaces. However, I'm going to address the sexual disaster that has been a result of these toxic theologies around sexuality and egalitarianism or not, not egalitarian, complementarianism, all that stuff. But at one point in our conversation, she was saying the men, like the John Pipers of the world were just mad. Like, well, no, the Bible says you're supposed to come and bring us to accountability first and then give us an opportunity. And it's like, dude, you have had decades of mother effing opportunity. By the way, I don't think that avoid that rule applies when you're abusing children, when you are raping women, when you are coercing people into having sex, when you're cheating on your spouse. Like, sorry, I don't think, but that has been used as such a great veil for abusers. And I think anyone who hears me saying this with so much like venom actually has to understand that it's not that I don't believe there are good people in those spaces or there's not well-intentioned people. That is the reason I'm so mad because I know there are well-intentioned good people in these spaces, but they are being totally taken for a ride. And unfortunately they have created a safe haven for abusers. And if you want to look at the list of the men who have been outed as outright, I mean, we're talking pedophiles with Frank Houston. We're talking about cheating on their wife, Carl Lentz. We're talking about hiding crimes, Brian Houston, who's about to go to jail or prison. And I heard 
heard recently that he's doing an American tour to like bolster himself before he goes to prison. Like these men are not repentant. They're holding like I call it the death rattle of patriarchy. I hope that's what we're in with the overturn of Roe and everything. I'm like, you are trying so hard to suppress the divine feminine, especially in your own selves. And it's killing all of us. It's killing the planet. It's killing your churches. You're dying. Like Gen Z isn't messing around with the church anymore because they're too smart. They know too much. They're like, I'm not submitting to the authority of someone who can't even tell that raping women or abusing children is wrong. Yeah, it's um, this is kind of defensiveness, right? That permeates the culture. You mentioned how Sheila gets a lot of this, you know, who do you think you are? Um, you're supposed to deal with this all pri uh, quietly and privately, which means we can just kill it, right? Uh, but it's really important to, whenever possible, follow the money. And so if we take Sheila's example, there is a massive industry in writing sex advice for evangelicals, massive, right? So let's talk money. Um, all these books, um, even while you know they're being um, basically marketed as, oh, this is a ministry. This is just a ministry, right? No, this is a business. It's a business. Mm -hmm. And and so there is um, uh, there are million dollar industries at stake, multi-million dollar industries at stake in what Sheila is doing. And she is going after the teachings that are just regurgitated, right? And, and, and the way this works too is, so Christian publishers are putting this stuff out and Christian publishers have the platforms to market these teachings and, and to, and there are gatekeepers. The, these are appropriate. These are godly. These are true. These are orthodox, whatever, you know, so you guys can read this. Then churches and small groups said, right. They, they, they buy these and, and there's just this vast market within evangelicalism for books and music and radio and TV. Right. And so, but again, this is always just called, this is a ministry. Um, and so, so it, it's this brilliant scheme because, because it's a ministry, they can actually get people to give money, not just pay for the products, but also donate to do the Lord's work. And meanwhile, like massive profits are being skimmed off the top, going into the pockets of the authors, the speakers, the, um, publishers, right. The whole system. And um, we should absolutely expect that these folks who are right in the center of things and lining their pockets are not going to take kindly when somebody like Sheila comes along and says, um, excuse me, but I think that some of the things that you're teaching are causing real damage. They are inaccurate. And can we please come together and talk about this, right? That is her approach over and over again. And they want nothing to do with that. Yeah. In addition to exhaustive statistical proof that their theology has hurt people. I mean, completely agree. So I think to wrap this up, I have two more questions. One being... So we have Donald Trump. I know that so many people who were teetering on the edge thinking like, maybe just maybe I'm either not a Christian anymore or I'm not a Christian like this anymore. Trump was like, if they were standing on a cliff, he was the one that just flicked his finger and they were like, woo, 
definitely not a Christian anymore. And which is crazy because it's like that he's supposedly, if it was a true figurehead, it would do the opposite work. It would draw people into the faith is my perspective of it. Um, but I think just, I would love for you to explain in a, in a more deep way, even to anyone who is arguing with their family, who is having to suffer through Thanksgiving dinners where they have conservative parents who are really not letting this go. You would think if he left office, we would be able to let it go. But there's so much damage that had been done. It was like running a car through a house and then being like, oh, now where does everybody stand? And you know, my father is a Trumper. He's of a certain era. I understand why and how he got there. I also understand that he was raised within a lot of fear, a lot of fear-based mentality. So that fear and that Fox News fear really can get into his skin and make him see the world through a different light. But what do you say to anyone listening who's like, I don't talk to my father anymore. I can't stomach these dinners. Like, is this man going to persist? Is there anything we can say to help people understand that he is not a Christ figure? He is a John Wayne corruption of the figure of Christ. Uh, I really wish I had a better answer for you and for your listeners, because uh, it's, it's really, really hard. And I think so many of us who live in these spaces have stories right? Stories of people that we deeply love and respect who are holding on to this ideology in ways that just seem not just incredibly harmful, but also just, just ridiculously wrong, right? And um, and so it's, it's really hard to know. I, I kind of live in this tension of, as a scholar, my role, as I understand it, is to just explain what I'm seeing, how, what happened and where has it brought us? Where are we right now? And, and honestly, it's not a very uplifting story, right? It's uh, Jesus and John Wayne is a pretty dark book. And uh, I'll get hit a lot from evangelicals who say, but where's the hope, right? Give us the hope. We have to end with with the the rosy feature and, and the, the, the to-do list, do this, fix it. It'll be fine, right? Like, that's not how history works, sadly. Um, we don't always move from, from something to something better to something better. Sometimes we take very dark turns and we might be taking that turn right now. And it's so hard to talk across difference right now because we are often operating in almost entirely different realities, right? This is not surprising to you. You mentioned Fox News. We can talk Newsmax. We can talk uh, Gab. We can talk Truth Social. And, and we have very, very real echo chambers. And, um, and this has been cultivated in evangelical spaces for generations, right? That's something I try to bring out in this book that in the early eighties, you have people like Tim LaHaye saying, don't trust the media, the mainstream media. We need our own sources. We need our own TV stations. Then we get Fox news. Perfect. Right. And we need our own news magazines and just don't trust any of that. And so what happens then is, you know, in, in, in the work that I do, it's very diagnostic. This is what is happening. This is what has happened. And it's not great. If you care about the future of American democracy, if you care about abuse and abuses of power, right. It's, it's not a great story. Um, but, um, so, so that's where we are, but how do we, how do we fix it? Sometimes I worry that the clearer our diagnosis, the more we lead with that, 
the more we're going to push people into their spaces because their whole worldview that they have embraced, that they have been you know, taught is they are out to get us and don't trust them. And, and we, by critiquing even the gentlest critique, we can easily get labeled one of them who are out to get us. Right. And so I see that happening. So there are no great solutions. I mean, the, the best I can say is uh, what we really need is for people to speak truth. And that means, and that doesn't mean just blasting people on social media. That means people who have standing in these spaces need to use their power. And the vast majority are not. The vast majority are staying quiet. I mean, if you look even what's happening at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary right now around Al Mohler, and he's coming out and some of the, the harshest voices of you know Christian nationalism are very extremist voices. I go regularly and say, okay, what are the other leaders saying right now? Who's stepping up to challenge this powerful, powerful man? No one, mm-hmm. no one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what we need. So people who have standing have to say something and the rest of us, you know, I think we have to maintain relationships. Um, we have to maintain those relationships while speaking our truth, because then it's, if you, if you keep that loving relationship, if you keep that day to day, it's, it's much harder for them to demonize you and people like you because there's a disconnect. Cause they're like, but no, she's actually really nice. She's caring. She's a good member of our community, right? And she's saying these things that I find abhorrent, but that tension is, I think, what we need to force right now. 100%. I couldn't agree more because I think there's this misconception going around in more left-leaning liberal spaces, like I'd say more far left, that is actually really hateful and presumptive about why people believe different things or shouting things like if you if you engage with these people if you maintain friendships if you show any sort of care or compassion towards them that you're on their side and I stand here to say I could not disagree more like sitting at a dinner table with someone is not stamping approval of everything they say on that. It's giving you access to their heart, to their life, to their story. The positive side of Trump, and I can't believe I'm saying that sentence, but <laughs> take it as a sound bite, cancel me. I'm like, Trump is actually really great. And here's why. <laughs> um, for me, it was like being in this in the evangelical culture, clawing my way out of it, having no resource that I was aware of. Like, I am so grateful for resources now, like Jesus and John Wayne, this great sex rescue, my book on her knees. Like so many people are speaking out and they're doing so in either a human way, like mine, I'm just like telling my story. Then you have statistical approach and theological approach and scholarly approach. There is so much resource to show how we've gotten to where we are. But I was seeing it build and build and build, and it just didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. And we were just always going to have this like brimming, toxic shit just underneath the surface of our society forever. So when Hillary lost, as painful as it was to reckon with, I did later think, but if she had won, would we have ever had this huge 
call for Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's death? Would we still have fought for the environment or for, you know, gun violence to be stopped? Like all of these movements that sprouted up, I do think it was like an equal and opposite reaction, basically. Trump came in so strongly as like, hey, we're not even going to hide this. I'm going to tell you exactly who I am, what I'm doing. I'm going to hold my Bible upside down after gassing this black church congregation. Like it was just so in your face that I had to eventually have gratitude for it because I'm like, there has been toxicity for a long time and thank God everyone can see it now. And thank God books like yours rise to the top of the New York Times bestseller list because I don't know other eras pre-Trump where you would have had that sort of clout after writing this. And because this toxic theology has not only affected millions of people in a negative way through religious trauma, sexual trauma, you name it, gay kids killing themselves, et cetera, so much toxicity and the the hiding of abuse. Like now we're getting to reckon with it and now we're getting to see it for what it is and people are getting to speak. And I'm just grateful that, you know, unfortunately it's not the male leaders, unsurprisingly, that are not wanting to release that power or not wanting to stand against their, their brothers and say something. But gentlemen, first of all, how sexy, how sexy would you be? You would have women just nail, like just pummeling to get into your house if you showed up. Like to me, that's masculinity. And I have masculinity inside of myself. Like even what we call feminine and masculine, like my more masculine attributes help me support me and my child and rise up in me when I see something that causes pain for someone else. So to me, a man rising up in this situation would be the guy who is like, hey, all you other guys, I know I share power with you, but I'm going to divest from that power or at least risk it to tell you that this is so wrong. Sexy. That'd be sexy. Right. What's real courage? <laughs> what is real strength? Is yeah. it jumping on the bandwagon, right? Is it risking nothing or is it putting some skin in the game and taking the hits, right? That are going to come and just continuing to act with integrity, with grace and speaking truth. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, any final thoughts? I mean, obviously everyone listening, I really want you to go get this book or get the audio book because it's really clarifying. And then Kristen, to your point, don't use it as a way to pummel your relatives and loved ones into like seeing the truth. Um, you know, I think there is a way to gently, firmly and kindly be like, hey, you know, just knowledge is power. Like if you know the history of a bad piece of theology, you're going to be empowered in that dinner table conversation to say something different. I think that that's such a, a great point that um, I, one of the responses I've gotten to Jesus and John Wayne from people outside of this culture is that it actually makes them more empathetic to those on the inside. And at first I found that a little jarring because it's it's not a gentle book, right? This was not a book written to woo evangelicals from the subtitle to the chapter titles to the snark throughout, right? You know, um, but uh, so, so I had to think about that. And it's, it's because you can place people in their context and they're not just a bunch of bigots or hypocrites, right? They are people who have been discipled to use a Christian word into this, who genuinely believe that this is the way that they can best follow God and, um, and best 
quote unquote, love their neighbors, right? It's a very twisted way, but, but it makes internal sense. And when you can see that from the outside, there, there is some grace then, right? There is some understanding of, ah, I see how you got here. Let's take a few steps back together. Yes, absolutely. I don't, have you ever seen the film Saved with Mandy Moore? Yes. Yes. A long, long time ago now, long time ago. It's so, it still holds up. It's amazing and sad at the same time. I'm like, oh my God, why are we still dealing with the same stuff? But it's just reminding me of that moment where Mandy Moore throws her Bible at Jenna Malone and she's like, I am full of Christ's love. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's a great gift now. So it lives on. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Even more than that, thank you so much for exhaustively writing an accurate truth-based. I know the word truth has been uh, robbed from us a little bit, but honestly, and for anyone who's conservative who made it the end of this conversation, oh my God, I commend you. Thank you for being here. And like, I would just encourage people that there's so much freedom when you realize this toxic theology isn't right. There's so much freedom as a man. I can only imagine when you're allowed to play with different essences and pieces of yourself, when you're allowed to have egalitarianism in your home, maybe you don't want to fix the car and your wife does like release. It's okay. Like (laughs) take the uh, misogynistic stick that was shoved up your butt since a young age out and just like live. And Jesus gives you permission explicitly in the Bible to really play with love and play with all aspects of yourself. So that's me. Any final little bit of wisdom from you, Kristen? I'll just say amen to that and you know, quote a Bible verse for you where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen. True freedom. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. We love you all so much. God bless. 